It's good to be back in this new year and to begin it uh, with our perspective set on who God is and all God has done. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. And I am excited to get back to what I consider to be the bread and butter of any church, which is preaching through books of the Bible, looking at what the Bible has to say. To us, we're not, to, we're not here to hear my opinion or here to hear what, what others may have to say. We're here to hear what God has to say to us, right? And we will look this morning at Genesis 11, beginning in verse 27 and reading through to chapter 12, verse 9. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. This is what God has to say. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot, and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that, place, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who, he, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. This is the word of God. It's good to be back in the book of Genesis. Last fall, we had worked our way from chapter 1 through chapter 11, all the way from the creation of the universe to the Tower of Babel, which took place around 2242 B.C., and we covered lots of ground, didn't we, in just a few short chapters. But this morning, as we really dive into part two of Genesis, we really begin to see the overall timeline slow down a lot. The focus narrows now to one family, the family of a man named Terah, to around 2166 B.C. 
And as we'll see, and I think we saw as we read, Tara really is not the point of the story. But rather, the focus is on his son, a guy you've probably heard of named Abram, or more popularly, his name is changed later to be Abraham. In fact, our passage this morning introduces us to four realities about this guy named Abraham. And we'll see first the context of Abraham, the choice of Abraham, the call of Abraham, and then the confidence of Abraham. Let's consider first the context around Abraham, the context of Abraham. See, his story begins much like we've seen throughout Genesis with a genealogy. And if you remember, and you'll see in your notes that genealogies or the Hebrew word teledot are used throughout Genesis to begin to mark a shift. They're beginning to mark a shift. They're a sign to us as readers that the account is moving forward. And many of us are tempted to skip them, right? We're tempted just to read really fast, but in skipping them, we miss a lot of important background information. If we skip this, we become like that one person in our life, and we all know them, who never pays attention to the opening of the movie. They're on their phone or they're making popcorn, or they're talking, or right when the movie starts, they suddenly have to go use the bathroom when they had tons of opportunities to do so before, and they miss the opening, and thus important context and information to understand what is happening. And we don't want to be like that, do we? We don't want to miss out on important context around this guy named Abraham. Why is this genealogy here? I think we see three sort of just general things we can see. First, we see that this genealogy introduces a solution to the big problem. Introduces the solution or a solution to the big problem. Every story, even God's grand story, has a problem. And Abraham's life doesn't happen in a vacuum. In fact, at the end of the last section, which was chapter 11, verse 26, we begin to cue in that something important was about to happen. 11.26 says, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Genesis 11.27 and onward cannot be understood apart from what we saw from Genesis 1.1 through 11.26. 26, that Abraham's story comes in light of the fall of Adam and Eve, the murder of Abel, the global flood, the scattering of the nations at Bethel, that he is in the context, the, the same as we saw how in the beginning there was a serpent, Satan, who entered the garden to tempt the first family, and that Adam obeyed the voice of the snake rather than the voice of his creator and ate from the tree that God commanded him not to eat. And though God created the world good, in fact, very good, Adam's disobedience brought corruption into the world. See, Adam's sin is the reason that God's good creation contains things like COVID-19, contains things like broken families, and contains things like selfish and incompetent leaders. And it brought the world to such a place to warrant a global flood and the scattering of peoples. And Genesis 3 tells us that the curse of sin made the work toilsome for the man. It made childbirth and and reproduction difficult for women. And it also included a promise in the midst of all of the bad news to defeat 
the serpent. Look at Genesis 3.15. Here God is speaking to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see it? God promises to crush the snake and to set the world right. If you want to kill a snake, you crush its head, don't you? And he promises here that there's going to be a day when the snake would be destroyed and all of the curses that came from this temptation and the fall of man would be reversed. And it's into this context we encounter Abraham's story. We don't uh, sometimes we're so tempted as we read through the Bible just to break up all of these accounts and see them as all of these separate things, but rather we need to see the Bible as one interconnected uh, account of God fulfilling the Genesis 3.15 promise. It's all this promise unfolded and opened up. Abraham is in the line of the seed of the woman, and the expectation is that he would somehow bring about or be a part of the solution to the big problem of the world, human sin and the fallenness of creation. The, the genealogy introduces us to a solution to the big problem. But we also need this genealogy to introduce us to the big family, to the big family. We begin to get introduced here to Abraham's folks, don't we? Look at verse 27 of chapter 11. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram and Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. We get to kind of go around and, and look at some of these folks in, in his family, and it continues to play out. Verse 28, Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ishka. Now the story we see begins to narrow down. You see brothers begin to die off, and, and others marry, and we learn the identity of their wives. It's sort of beginning to tell us who matters in this introduction. Who's the story going to continue through? Verse 31 and 32 continues to introduce us. Look, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans into the land of Canaan. And when they went to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This begins to introduce us to Abraham's very large family. And then the third thing this genealogy does is introduces us to Abraham's big problem. See, it's not just that the world has a big problem. Abraham has a big problem. Did you catch it there in verse 30? It says, now Sarah was barren. She had no children. See, Abraham's wife is experiencing exactly what Genesis 3 what said would happen. One of the curses of sin in the world is that childbirth would be difficult for her. And we're left wondering if there's going to be a child that's going to come through Abraham who's going to somehow destroy the snake, how can that happen if his wife is barren? How can the promise continue through him? It looks as if there's no hope because there's personal darkness over Abraham's life and it looked as if darkness had won. And it's into all of this context that we see, second, the choice of Abraham. 
the choice of Abraham. Into this context of darkness, we see the first few words of chapter 12. Then the Lord said to Abram. Consider just the gravity of these words. That the Lord, the creator, the ruler of all things, spoke to Abram. To a regular guy, a nomad in the middle of nowhere. He didn't speak to someone with riches or prominence. This guy didn't even have any kids at this point. He was going to carry on his legacy. And in fact, God spoke to someone who wasn't even looking for him. You can mark this down, but Joshua 24 verse 2 tells us that Abraham was a pagan before God spoke to him. He wasn't out just considering and contemplating the things of God. He was was happy in his own idolatry, worshiping whatever he wanted to. And yet God spoke clearly and obviously. In a land of complete darkness, from a people who had forsaken God, and in a family that was actively serving idols, God stepped in. You see the incredible choice of God, the initiation and grace of God. Hear me, God is always the first pursuer. God's grace always moves before we do. You'll see this in your notes. Revelation always precedes response. Revelation always precedes response. God comes to Abraham and turns his world upside down. And let me tell you something. If you are a believer today, if you're a child of God today, or you wish to be one, this must be true of you too. Because see, none of us just woke up one day and decided, today would be a good day to make God my everlasting hope and joy. And let me tell you too, no one's ever been won to the kingdom of God through a clever argument. It is always God's initiation and his grace through his word at work in their life. Let me show you this. Ephesians chapter 2 really describes our situation, doesn't it? And here's what it says. Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are by default dead in our sins. It says we're in service to the prince of darkness, pursuing our own way without a care for the one true God. This is everybody's default. No one is neutral when it comes to our relationship to the one true God. And it says, spiritually, we're corpses. We're dead. There's nothing in and of ourselves that we could do to dig ourselves out of our situation. And that's why Ephesians gives us the two most beautiful words next. But God. But God. God steps in. And by His grace, He steps in through His word. And look what He does. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, Even when we were dead, 
in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See this, but God. Friends, it is only by the grace of God that anyone comes to know God. And if you're here today and, and, you, and you say, well, I know God, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, that means there is no room for boasting in you. No room. We can't go around with some swagger going, hey, look at me, I know Jesus. No, you only know him because God and his grace pursued after you. But friends, this is also true for your neighbors. This is true of people you're around, whether at work or your family who don't, who don't know, or your friends who are lost. And oh, how this is a call to pray. Oh, how this is a call to pray for God to give opportunity and for God's word to be met with his grace and to transform hearts and lives. And oh, how this is a motivation to give ourselves to being faithful, to, to simply preach the gospel to people. I know how this takes a weight off of you. Let me, let me tell you something. You don't have to have all the answers. Because even if you did, answers don't bring people to God. Grace does. His word does. You can't save anyone. Only God does, and that should humble us and encourage us as we see in the midst of this context of darkness and rebellion, God's choice of Abraham, his speaking to him and showing grace to him. And then we look at, third, the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham. See, God did have a special role that Abraham's going to play, and we'll follow this as we walk through the next section of Genesis together, what exactly did God say to Abraham? Look, verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an incredible plot promise. One command, three promises. One act, three motivations. God said, Abram, go. Leave everything you know. And notice, don't just leave your country, yes, leave your country, but he says, leave your kindred or your tribe, your culture, people who are kind of like you. It'd be like, don't just leave Katie's, but leave Western Kentucky. And then he says, but also leave your father's house. Leave your father's house. Get off the family farm. Leave the culture you know. Leave the very country that you're in. Oh, and he says, I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I'm not going to tell you where you're going. It will be the place that I will show you. Oh, do you see the incredible call of God? Go to a place that you've not seen. Leave everything but your wife and go somewhere. And this was long before the days of GPS or Google Maps. Let me tell you, 
We were, me and, me and Dana were driving through Katie's the other day, and we took a wrong turn because I thought I could get where I was going without Google Maps. And we just sort of go on. It's like, are you sure you know where, where we're going? And, of course, at that point, I really didn't. So I pull up the, the phone down here, and I'm like, yeah, totally. Just take, take this ride up here, and it'll take us back where we're going. Google Maps enabled me to say that I, in fact, knew where I was going when really I didn't. But consider Abraham had to pick up his stuff and travel who knows where without anything but his faith. And this was a call to action that had three astounding promises attached to it. We see these in your notes. First, that God promised Abraham land. God promised Abraham land. Look there at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And the implication here is that the land would be his right? Leave your land, Abram, and get a land I will give you. In fact, get your own nation, it says. Leave from your land, get another land, and a land in which your name will be great, right? Your name will be great. And verses 5 to 7 tell us that this was the land of Canaan. And if you know much of your Old Testament, you know that the land of Canaan becomes very significant later on, doesn't it? As you continue through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and as you continue, you see that Abraham was the father of a great nation, the nation of Israel, that would eventually take control of the land of Canaan. Again, the rest of the books of Moses are all about how this is going to happen. And Abraham in Genesis 12 set up for where the rest of the Old Testament is going. And here we see, yes, this nation of Israel, God's people are going to wander through a wilderness to a place God would show them and to a land he promised them. Abraham was promised land. Second, he promised Abraham family. God promises Abraham family. The promise of children of descendants. Look at verse 7. This must have been so incredible for Abraham to hear. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. Think of that, hearing that and going, what? My wife is barren. How will I ever have offspring to give this land to? Oh, how incredibly unbelievable this promise must have been. This isn't all God has to say to Abraham on this matter. And again, we'll look at that in weeks to come. But just consider when it says that a nation was going to come through him. Consider how many children you got to have for a nation to come from you. Consider the, the incredible promise of God. Finally, he promises to bless the whole world. God promises to bless the whole world. World. Did you see there in verse 3 that God will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him? This is a promise of divine protection. But he also guarantees, he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All of them. In other words, all of creation and all the people of the earth would eventually taste of this blessing. Rather than a curse over creation and all of its families. God has a day set where all of them will be blessed in the promise of Abraham. See it. Think about this. 
What was cursed from sin in Genesis 3? Well, the land, the family, and childbearing, right? There's a lot more, but that's, that's a few things. And here in Genesis 12, God promises that he will bless the land and overcome the barriers of barrenness for his purpose through one family. And see the promise of Genesis 12, that the curses of Genesis 3, all the fallenness and brokenness of the world are not ultimate or final. The days of the curse are numbered. And after the context, the choice, and the call, consider with me the confidence of Abraham. Consider finally the confidence of Abraham. He, look, look at this. Look at how he responds. This is verse 4. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old. Mark that down when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to the land to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah at the time the Canaanites were in the land. He gives the most incredible, confident responses, three responses. In fact, as he hears this word, and we're look at each of these first, Abraham believed. Abraham believed. And Abraham didn't make a plan B, if you noticed. He put all the chips on the table on God in his word. And Abraham displays for us what biblical faith is. And I'm afraid many in the church think of faith as fire insurance. Many of them think, well, if I just affirm certain things, then I'm not going to go to hell. But friends, let me tell you, Abraham stacked his whole hope and his whole life in an act of trust. I can tell you, biblical faith is primarily trust, not simply meant a mental checklist to check down, but it's the way you, you came in today and you sat down in the chair you sat in, putting your whole weight and your whole hope that it would hold you up. In the same way, biblical faith is putting all of our hope and our faith and our trust in what God has revealed. He packed up everything he could gather he left his family and he set off to the place that God told him to go. And friends, faith, this sort of true faith in God can only come from a true encounter with God. Abraham could only do this because he had an absolute, unshakable, unwavering confidence in the God he encountered. Would that describe your life? Would that describe your life that you can truly say, I have encountered the living God in such a way that I'd be willing to pack up everything and go if he was to tell me to do that, that I'm willing to do anything his word reveals to me to do because I have encountered him in such a living way. Consider Abraham is lauded over and over and over in the Bible for his faith. Consider just, just a couple places. Romans chapter 4 Verse 20 to 21, look what Paul says about Abraham. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Look at this, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. There's your definition of what biblical faith is. 
being fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. Or consider Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 and 10, which tells us, By faith he, which is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Look at this. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder was God. He had such a confidence and a faith in the future God promised that he was willing to leave everything in the present to have it. And that's why Galatians chapter 3 verse 9 calls Abraham the man of faith. He's called the man of faith. And it's a model for us. Do we have the faith, the, the way Abraham believed? Does that model our life as a Christian? Because it's meant to. We're meant to have the faith of Abraham and to walk in the way he did. We see Abraham's confidence in that he believed. But even beyond the, the concept of faith that, yes, can be a little abstract, we have something much more concrete in that Abraham obeyed. Abraham believed, but Abraham obeyed. See, you can believe all these things you want, but if Abraham didn't actually pack up his stuff in the U-Haul and get going, it really didn't mean anything, did it? Faith without works is dead, the Bible says. It was evidence of his genuine faith in God. As much as his faith is a lesson to us, his obedience should be a lesson to us as well. Look what Hebrews 11 says again. See this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place he was to receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. You see it, by faith, he obeyed. Friends, our faith is empty without obedience. We can claim to believe God's word all we want, but our lives say far more than anything else will. I mean, for Abraham, being a believer wasn't having a Christian bumper sticker on his donkey or stopping at Chick-fil-A on the place he was going, or that he could feel or vote a certain way politically. But, his, but rather, it was his willingness to sacrifice for the glory of God. It was his willingness not to get what he might want, or to get what might make him comfortable, but rather to have all that God promised. Hear, hear my heart here. In my heart, this has weighed heavy on me this week. As important as church attendance is, being a Christian doesn't begin and end with showing up here at 10 o'clock on Sundays or being here every time the doors are open. But rather, a, being, being a believer or being a Christian, being a disciple and a follower of Christ begins and ends with how you live behind closed doors. We can claim all we want to, to love and serve Jesus and he's our life. But what does it actually look like when the pastor's not around, right? I found that a lot. People put on one face with me and then they got another face when I'm gone, right? Or, or when the church, or, well, the church people are over. I got my church friends, but then I got my party friends on the weekend. And, and, and they don't have to know about each other at all, right? Being a Christian does not begin and end with what you do here, but how you live when the doors are behind closed doors. Abraham believed God, and thus Abraham obeyed God. He packed up his life to head out toward God's best. 
And along the way, the third thing we see is that Abraham worshipped. Abraham worshipped. He believed, he obeyed, and he worshipped. Now, look at the rest of the section, verse 7. Look at this, Genesis 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. A few things to notice. First, he built an altar. You see there in the land that God had promised him, if you actually kind of trekked out his journey, he sort of basically walked through the whole of the land here with some of these directions, kind of symbolically claiming it. Hey, I've walked it all. You know, if you're about to buy a piece of property, you're going to walk the whole thing. Abraham sort of walked the whole thing here, and he put a holy place there. It says he pitched his tent, meaning he made a lengthy stop, and he worshipped, and he called upon the name of the Lord. Friends, hear me. Worship is the fuel for Abraham's faith and obedience. And worship is our fuel for our faith and obedience. What we are doing here this morning isn't just some sort of ritual where, okay, I, let me just check off the list. I'm going to go to church, I'm going to be here, I'm going to do these things. No, it is fuel as we collectively call upon the name of the Lord and as we sing the word and pray the word and hear the word and preach the word and do all these things, it is fuel for lives of abandon and sacrifice for the glory of God. There is actually a reason you are here today. <laughs> not just to sit, not just to have a butt in a seat but to have fuel, gasoline for a life of obedience. Abraham and his companions made worship a priority, and then they packed up their stuff and continued on their journey. And in many ways, Abraham's life is meant to be a picture of ours. Because just as Abraham had to live in the present in light of a future that wasn't yet fully seen or realized, so we live by faith in future grace. We live by faith, just like Abraham, the call of the Christian faith is, is present radical sacrifice in light of certain promises. It is abandonment of present pleasures in order to have greater pleasures in the end. In fact, hear this, Christian maturity what, what Christian maturity entails, the believer's hope and holiness, our joy as disciples, is always dependent on where our eyes are set. What our hope is, what we, what's in, our, in the mirror as we're driving forward, what, what's, what's in front of us is always what drives how we live in the present. Or to say it another way, the Christian life is always a battle between pleasures. The Christian life, your life, hear me, is always a battle between pleasures. Because, hear me, sin can be pleasurable. I said it. There it is. The pastor said it. Sin can feel really, really, really good. Because if it didn't, why would you do it? Right? But hear me, Satan can dangle all sorts of momentary pleasures in front of your face. He did it. Jesus was in the wilderness, right? 
and the world and the flesh and the devil can dangle all sorts of things in front of you, but friends, it's bait. There's a hook. There's something that's going to get a hold of you. Sexual pleasures. The, the twisted joy of bitterness. The elusive joy of worldly riches. All of it looks so good, but there's a hook in the bait. And friends, the devil's plan for 2021, for your life this next year or any time, is that you would exchange the eternal pleasure in God for a momentary taste of the bait. That you would exchange an abundant and eternal life with him for destruction and the destructive hook of hell. Hear me, Abraham would have likely been pretty happy to disobey God and stay where he was. Might have even seemed practical at the time. But whether in this life or the next, sin always hooks its enticers, and friends, these lesser pleasures can drag you straight to hell. And Abraham believed the promises of God. He walked in obedience, yes, imperfect obedience, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead. And he worshiped with his gaze and his hope and his joy set on the one who spoke to him. And friends, whether we realize it or not, God has spoken to us this morning. Not because, not because of me, but because we are, we are hearing his word this morning. That the word of God is pursuing after you just like it did Abraham. And like Abraham, this moment, in fact, the whole new year is an opportunity to respond. What will you do with God's word that you have heard this morning? What will you do with God's word that you've heard before? What will you do with God's promise that, that he is going to reverse the curse and set everything right? God has kept his Genesis 3.15 promise and that he sent Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the seed of the woman, and through his death on the cross his burial and his resurrection from the dead, he dealt a death blow to the devil. He, the, yes, the snake is still sort of squirming around and doing whatever he can to try to destroy all that Jesus would seek to do. But friends, there is a date set when all of the curses on this world will be reversed. And in the present, you can experience full and free forgiveness of your sin and restoration to God. Yes, you can have that assurance that you'll go to be with him when you die. But friends, you'll also have a journey along the way full of life with God. Because eternal life isn't simply happiness without God. Eternal life is to know God and to have life with him both in the present and throughout all of eternity. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, this is where our hopes must rest. And friends, as the new year is here, I'd ask you, where is your hope set? Do we, like Abraham, have we truly encountered the living God in such a way that we believe his word and are willing to forsake anything in order to have him? Have we done that? Because if you haven't, right where you are, you can do that. You can call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, if you feel a prompting in your heart to do it, I think that's a sign that God's grace might already be at work in your hearts. And you can call on him where you are. You can talk to me after the service. We would love to chat with you about what it means to follow Jesus and to know him truly, not simply to check a, to check a box, 
or to live in sort of this, this, this Christian subculture, but to truly have an encounter with the living and true God in the new year. May it be said of us that we were looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we have heard your word this morning. And there are people here today who maybe they're just playing the church game. They're here thinking that somehow this being here today would somehow earn them some pleasure with you or earn them some favor with you. May they hear now that, that our right standing with you is by grace alone, through faith alone, in what Jesus has done alone and not in anything that we bring to the table. That you have done everything necessary through your death, burial, and resurrection to reconcile us to you. And may you, by grace, prompt and convict and draw hearts to you, even right now. That they would call upon your name and commit their lives to you. To turn away from whatever sin they might be living in or have lived in. And realize that you will accept them as they are, but they will leave from your presence changed as a new creation in these moments. May we all set our hopes on future grace, on future promise. And as we sing and reflect and hear your word together, may you be honored and glorified. And may it be fuel for us as we go out into the world and live for you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together like God is faithful. And his faithfulness never ends. Are you ready?
gathering together. Just a couple quick reminders. One of the a great way to kick off the new year is to, in an act of worship that we do together, is to give. And so if you are able to, we have a basket here on the way out of the exit. You can also give on our website. Just go crossroadskaties.com, click the give button, or text any amount to 84321 to give to continue to support the ministry that we're doing here, even in the midst of uncertain times. People are being reached with God's word. Uh, people are being drawn to him, and the Lord is not restricted by things that might restrict us. So thankful for those that give and, and for that uh, act of worship. Uh, let's close with uh, a benediction. The doxology at the end of the book of Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.